Hey, it's Aaron. And I'm Sarah. And this is 31 Nights of Scary Shit. Oh, hello. Oh, hello. Hi, friends. We're back. I We need to stop saying that. We've been saying it for months now. <laughs> I know, but I am a little surprised we are back sometimes. I'm always surprised when we come back. After um, this week, I'm surprised we came back at all. That's very <laughs> true. It's been quite a trying week. But I did get a new tattoo. Oh, yeah. Tell us about your tattoo. Yes, I got a new tattoo. For those of you that don't know, because I don't put it on any of our podcast social media, I have tattoos. That's that's my coming out is that I have tattoos, but I just <laughs> I got a new one on my leg and it's a Mothman. And the person that did it was Monica and I can't pronounce her last name, but she's at Saints and Sinners and I love her and she's fabulous and it's really spooky. It's a spooky Halloween Mothman. Yeah, it's really cool. Actually. It's really rad. I feel like I am like an art museum. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I'm so excited. And now I just want like eight more. But she's moving to Portland soon, so oh, it's, like, no. heartbreaking. But then that just means I have to find other cool artists. She's moving to Portland, Oregon? Portland, Oregon, okay. yeah. That's interesting, because part of our story takes place near Portland, Oregon. Oh, wonderfully themed. Yeah, it's- Speaking of themes, <laughs> what a terrible segue I just did. Yeah. Um, so this month is February, in case you were unclear of the date. Um, and it is Black History Month, and... For Black History Month, we figured we would focus on some cases where it may not be getting as much, you know, play on, you know, true crime podcasts or on the news because the nature of the victims are people of color, Black, African American, Hispanic, you know, people that unduly don't get the attention they deserve. Yeah. Um. By nature of the color of their skin. So uh, we thought we'd bring attention to some cases that may not be getting a lot of um, news time or a lot of airplay because of that. So Aaron's going to kick us off with, I don't want to say a good one. I want to say a really horrific one, but it's going to be, you know, an excellently researched one because Aaron is always impeccable with the research. Well, it... The weird thing is that's never a good way to start the podcast. Just be like, "Well, guys, um, it's not a, it's, it's not, not going to be great, but it's going to be it's not good, a, I guess." It's not a feel good story, but now you said you'd not heard of this one either, right? I've, I okay, so I think I've heard of it, but I know no details. Like right. I think I've heard about it, but I don't know anything. I feel like about I've it. heard of stories like it, but this yeah. one in particular. So, well, like, like I was saying when we were talking about, like when I just was saying what the episodes are about, I think that's like mm-hmm. a common thing with a lot of the ones that like I know the one that I'm doing next week like you really didn't hear anything about it until Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter came about and people really started like pushing that idea of like we need to talk about the problems that are going on with the amount of murdered people based solely off of race Um, well this um this is probably more complicated than just a race situation but that's definitely a driving force from the very preliminary information I have so I think it's possible that maybe on the West Coast this had a lot of attention and maybe just nationally oh, we didn't get it. Yeah. You know, so but like still, like what you've told me about this, it yeah. should have been national news. And maybe maybe it wasn't, I just missed it, but it was fairly recent. It was twenty eighteen yeah. and I happened to see a documentary and I was like, What in the hell? When did this happen? And it was just yeah. like and every person I told her, like, Oh my god, that's terrible. I never heard of this. But coming on the wings of the Turpins. 
Oh, there's a lot of similarities Ooh. here. Oh, and if you have not watched that 2020, um, you have to go watch it. It's fucking crazy. The only the 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 difference being that the Turpins were biological children. This is mm-hmm. and, and they're white. These yeah. are six black children adopted by um, a white lesbian couple. Okay, so, so, so many things. Yeah. Um, first of all, foster adoption situations are so complicated, and uh-huh. this probably is not going to color the foster adoption system in a good light, I would imagine. No, no. Oh, it's going to be bad, it's isn't it? Pretty scary, actually. Um, anyway, I'll just go into yeah. it. I wrote this whole introduction, so I'm going to just read it as I have it because I go for it. So, this is a tragic story about how the social service system failed six black children. Jennifer and Sarah Hart were a married couple who presented themselves as progressive, loving parents who were committed to providing a nurturing and supportive environment to their six adopted black children. So they adopted two sets of of, of, of three siblings each. So they adopted, oh, did they adopt them at the same time? Uh, I think three at, they did three and three. So like one, one year they adopted three and then like a couple years later they adopted three Gotcha, more. gotcha, gotcha. Jen utilized social media to create a facade of the perfect family. Mm. And if you look this up after, you're going to be appalled if you can uh. find any of it. You're going to be appalled knowing knowing what was really going on now. Her Facebook post showed smiling children with beautiful scenery in the background. To those who did not have a window into their daily lives, the heart tribe, with quotes around it as they were called, seemed to be living an idyllic life. On March 26, 2018, a German tourist discovered Jennifer Hart's overturned GMC Yukon on the rocks below a 100-foot cliff located off Highway 1 in Mendocino County in California. Oh, my God. Jennifer Hart and Sarah Hart, both 38 years old, and three of their children, Marcus, 19, Jeremiah, 14, and Abigail, 13, were found deceased inside. What the hell? The other three children were missing. Wait a second. Three of the kids and both the women were found dead in the one car. Yeah. Holy shit. Devonte, so there were, and three other of the three other children were missing. Devonte, fifteen; Hannah, sixteen; and Sierra, twelve. The investigation into the accident would reveal a dark and sinister tale of abuse and neglect that unfolded over a decade. Hannah and Sierra were eventually found deceased. Devonte's oh. body has never been found, <gasps> but he is presumed to be dead. I, I, I would love for it to be he's somewhere living his best know, life. Right? They've never found him. At least, as far as I know, to last i checked they have not found that is usually like the blessing and the curse of a person where you never find their body is like you can kind of like make yourself feel better going they're living a great life in europe somewhere away from all this and but really you know what has actually happened that's so Mm -hmm. sad so jennifer and sarah's relationship uh they met while they were both in college at northern state university in aberdeen south dakota so they were originally from south dakota don't trust anyone from South Dakota. <laughs> now South Dakota comes for us. <laughs> <laughs> coming. While Jen and Sarah told people at the time that they were just roommates, they began a romantic relationship. Jennifer claimed that her family was not supportive of her relationship with Sarah and that they lost friends when they came out as a couple. Depending on who you ask, that may or may not be true. There, oh. are, there are some conflicting reports from Jennifer's family in which they say that they were supportive of Jennifer being gay and that she chose to distance herself from her family. And I choose to believe that that's probably yeah, it's more. probably true. Yeah. Jen and Sarah relocated to Alexandria, Minnesota and took jobs at the same department store. Sources say that Jen's personality was the more dominant of the two, while Sarah appeared more reserved and kind of passive. In 2004, Jen and Sarah, who were only in their mid-20s, took in a 15-year-old foster child, and I was not able to find the foster child's name. 
Co-workers reported that Jen and Sarah complained often about the teenager. Despite the difficulties they seemed to be having as foster parents, Jen and Sarah decided they wanted to adopt three children. They gave the teenage girl false hope by telling her that she would become a big sister. However, without an explanation, Jen and Sarah dropped the teenager off at a therapist's office one day <gasps> and never came back for her. Pieces of shit. Yep. I mean, aside from the whatever happens at the end of the story, uh-huh. pieces of absolute garbage. So there, right there, is the, uh, right there, I think, ta- speaks of the character. Of First of two. all, yeah. that should have been a huge red flag. Uh, and well, they should not have been allowed I to know. keep those children. Oh, it get, you don't even, this is incredible what happened. Uh, four states. This, this bullshit happened across four states with these two. Just wait. They kept fleeing every time. I have to just get a good yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, In 2006, Jen and Sarah took in three siblings from Harris County, Texas, who had been placed in foster care. Marcus, age seven, Hannah, four, and Abigail, age two. In 2008, Jen and Sarah added siblings Devontae, five, Jeremiah, four, and Sierra, age three, also from Harris County, to their, I'm putting in quotes, family. Devontae's mother, Sherry Davis, had lost custody of her children due to her drug use. At first, they lived with Nathaniel Davis, Sherry's boyfriend. They were placed in the care of their aunt, Priscilla Celestine, the sister of their father, Clarence Celestine. Davis and Celestine agreed to give up their rights because it would give Priscilla a better chance of adopting them. Priscilla had no history of drug abuse, had raised her own daughter, had a steady job, and had moved into a bigger home to accommodate the children. There was a court order that the children were not allowed any contact with Sherry Davis. However, one day Priscilla was called into work unexpectedly and she let the children stay with their mom as she was unable to locate any other child care. So then she had a kid. When CPS found out, they removed the children from Priscilla. It seemed an extreme response to that one mistake. That's an extreme response when it could have just been an... A moment of like, okay, so childcare is an issue for you. Here is some other options that you could. Yeah. Fucking pieces of shit. A CPS worker showed up one day unannounced and told Priscilla, get the kids dressed and they were taken away. Incidentally, the children were placed with the hearts. Priscilla tried to fight for the children, but to no avail. The family pulled together some money to appeal the case so Priscilla could adopt. Um, There were actually four kids, but... um, So these three siblings also had an older sibling. By the time that Priscilla's case went to appeals court in 2010, the kids had already been adopted by the Hearts. It seems there's a pattern of child welfare cases in the Houston area where children are taken away from family members and instead given over to strangers for speedy adoptions. White families. This, yes, this is a quote about the judge, Patrick Shelton, who oversaw the, the adoption case. This is from 1998. In 1998, the Houston Press ran a short column about Shelton butting heads with Texas Protective and Regulatory Services, now known as the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services, for appointing attorneys to monitor CPS workers in an effort to speed up adoptions. The child welfare agency accused him of trying to line the pockets of his favorite attorneys. Shelton argued at the time that he simply wanted to speed up adoptions so children wouldn't languish in foster care. Yes, but the point of foster care is to reunite families. It's not yep. to take them out of their families' houses and yes. put them into white people's houses. And there was a qualified, loving adult, several... Who had made one singular mistake. Who had who had set up the conditions to accommodate them in a home. I know. And for the record, at this point, these assholes have left a child at a therapist office, so they have also made a gross mistake. Equal to 
the person who was trying to keep the kids that they ended up adopting fucking pieces of shit. Incidentally, the children were placed with the hearts, as as we have noted, two young white women. Him. I want to mention there was also an older sibling named Dante that Jen and Sarah chose not to adopt. Pieces of shit. Dante ended up in a boy's home, and Nathaniel Davis adopted him in 2014. In 2015, Dante was arrested for robbery and was serving three a three-year sentence. I'm not sure if where he is now. Davis had promised Dante that once he got out of prison, they were going to find his siblings and reunite them. And that was not meant to be, sadly. Uh, that's sad. A decade-long saga of secrecy, lies, abuse, and neglect was unfolding behind closed doors. Jennifer used social media as a way to conceal what was really going on in their home. Facebook posts show happy, smiling children at musical music festivals and at Bernie Sanders rallies. The viral image of Devontae Hart, maybe you'll know this, crying and hugging a white police officer, <gasps> that's the kid. Oh my god, I just got chills. Was regard me too. It was regarded as a symbol of the racial harmony that we can only hope will exist someday. Or was Devontae crying for a different reason? Remember that picture? He just wanted to be safe. Yep. Oh, that's heartbreaking. No, I. the second you said that, I got chills all over my body because I remember. It was decided that Jen would assume the primary caregiver role to the children. So she stayed home with the kids while Sarah mm. worked. It wasn't long before there were signs of cracks in the foundation of the Hart family. In September of 2008, while the Harts lived in Minnesota, Abigail went into school with bruises on her arm. When her teacher questioned her, she said that her parents had hit her with a belt. There were no charges filed. The Harts pulled their children out of school for a year and re-enrolled them the following year. Wait a second. She went to school with bruises, told them that she got hit with a belt by her parents, and nothing happened. So now at this point, Correct. the foster adoption family has made two gross mistakes to the one mistake from the family. Fucking pieces of shit. Yeah. Totally avoidable. And there's, there's, Those children would still be alive. They would still be alive. And there's little to no follow through after once they're adopted is the thing. There's no checking up after that. It's, it's, it's done. There's so many things wrong with the foster oh, care and what? adoption systems in our country. It is so disgusting the things uh -huh. that some of these kids are subjected to in a system that is supposed to protect them. In November of 2010, allegations of abuse surfaced again when six-year-old Abigail Hart's teacher notified authorities. Abigail told investigators that her mother, Jennifer, I think I may have had the, the child of, in, of 2008 wrong. I might have mixed oh. up their names. So I will amend this later because I have Abigail twice and it couldn't, it couldn't be because she would have been older at that point. But yeah. let's put it this way. There was another allegation. There's a history of child yeah, abuse. There's another allegation of abuse. And this is, six, this is a six-year-old. Um, so the teachers, again, notified authorities. Abigail told investigators that her mother, Jennifer, had punched her and had held her under her head underwater because Jen believed she had stolen a penny that was found on her. The other children also told investigators that their mothers frequently spanked them, grounded them, and withheld food from them as punishment for minor offenses. Does that sound familiar? Are these people dead? Uh, they're dead. Yes, we found out at the beginning of yeah. this episode they're dead. Thank God those two pieces of shit women are dead. Sarah Hart admitted that she had hit Abigail and was convicted of misdemeanor domestic assault. So why aren't the kids uh, taken away from them? And placed on probation for a year in order to complete community service. So a slap on the wrist. For beating children. Yet the family that won... One of Sarah's former co-workers believes Sarah had actually taken the fall for Jennifer. Probably. Yeah. I will be honest. I think it's possible Sarah may have also been afraid of Jennifer. I'm not excusing Sarah. 
Oh, not excusing Sarah, but the dynamic seems a bit like a battered spouse syndrome, <gasps> like like where she goes, oh, okay, yeah, I, I'm not excusing her. But, no, 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 but it's not excuse. There, it's an explanation. There's in context. Evan, th- there were several people that that said. um, we kind of think, you know, being around her day to day and how kind of passive she was that maybe she was also afraid, but yeah. whatever. One of Sarah's former co-workers uh, from the Coles where she was working at the time of her death said that Sarah had confided in her once about Jen's obsessive and controlling behavior. The co-worker stated that she believed that Sarah acted as a buffer between Jen and the kids. Most often when the children were interviewed, it sounded like Jennifer was the main culprit of the abuse. Jen also had decided that she was going to be the main caregiver and she was going to stay home with the kids. Maybe the thought was that it would be better for Sarah to take the blame if Jen was going to continue to be the main caregiver. And this reminds me of the Turpins. They pulled all six kids out of school for good at this point in 2010 and homeschooled them, which now no one can check on them. So now the children are isolated. No one would be obligated to check on them. Well, that's like that one situation where we work. With that one, never mind, never mind, never mind. <laughs> well, that one employee, that one time. And anyway, we'll talk I, about it I later. I think I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I know what you mean. Yeah. Apparently after an adoption, at least in this case, there's little monitoring of how the children are being cared for. And I think it's a prime example that there should be. And this really stinks of white privilege. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two young, pretty white ladies who rescued, you know, six troubled black rescued? children. Rescued? Rescued yeah, in yeah. air quotes, people. Yeah. Big air yeah. quotes makes, when you're beating those children. Makes me want to vomit. Yeah. I think I threw up in my mouth. In 2013, the Hearts relocated again to West Lynn, Oregon, which is a suburb of Portland. The family was renting a home and raising goats and chickens in the backyard. I mean, that sounds fun. Sure. Sarah worked and Jen stayed at home as the main caregiver again. The Hearts became well-known in the nationwide musical festival community. Devante was somewhat of a local celebrity due to the Free Hugs t-shirt that he would wear at festivals. Tons of images of that on online. They and the children attended these events that were focused on unity, social consciousness, dancing, and yoga. Jen posted images of children dancing, singing, and performing at the festival. From the post, it appeared that the Hearts were a happy, loving family. Often they were in matching outfits, which to me signifies creepiness. I don't do 100%. The minute you start matching those outfits, I go, yep, abuse. (laughs) I'm sorry. That's there's like multiple pictures. Wait a second. I'm confused. Sorry, I'm Googling it. Oh. So often, as I said, they were in the matching outfits. However, if one were to know the ages of the children and look closely, it was apparent the children were very thin and small for their ages. Hello, Turpins. Yeah, like you look at these pictures and they are very like uh-huh. underweight uh-huh. like uh, very much. The only so. one that wasn't was Marcus, the oldest. I don't and maybe it was because he was already kind of more developed oh yeah it just gets worse jen hart used social media as a way to portray herself as the ultimate white savior her posts often contained rants about the unkind world who looked down upon her and sarah because they were a same-sex couple raising black children one of her posts contained the phrase if not us then who in regards to who else is going to be this selfless and adopt six troubled drug babies as they were often referred to but allegations of abuse continued despite the heart's attempts to flee every time some every time someone saw through the facade. In 2013, calls were made to the Oregon Department of Social Services. One person who called authorities claimed that the children were kind of like lifeless robots, again, turpins, and that they were terrified of Jen. 
Neighbors noticed how thin and frail the children were. They told authorities that the pictures were staged, that the Hearts in reality were not a happy, loving family. A friend that the Hart family stayed with in California claimed that Jen ran the family like a boot camp and that there was no real love and affection between Jen and the children. The authorities interviewed the Hart children in August of 2013 and did not find enough evidence of abuse. The children denied any abuse and claimed that they were grateful for their situation. Well, of course! What are they going to say? They're going to get the shit beat out of them if they don't or not eat. It was noted that the children showed little emotion. Jen's explanation was that people simply didn't understand their lifestyle. The authorities did not find concrete evidence of abuse and the case was closed. Here's another quote from a Minnesota child welfare worker. The phenomenon is explained in documents released by the Oregon Department of Human Services. The problem is these women look normal and they give professionals the information about all the children being adopted because they are high needs and have mental health issues related to food. Then people tend to assign the problems to the children. After each investigation, the hearts were allowed to keep the kids. In other words, they were awfully good at good at uh, fooling people. Yeah, but how many times of fooling people I know. until somebody is like... I know. Well, this seems weird just the amount of time. I mean, there were people calling. That's the thing. It's the system. There were, there were plenty of people calling and, and nothing was happening. In December of 2014, Devontae Hart attracted national attention at a Black Lives Matter protest in Portland. A photo of Devontae sobbing and hugging a white police officer who was there to keep the peace went viral. Media outlets, outlets wanted Devontae to be a guest on their shows, but Jen refused, stating she was trying to protect him. Now, I would understand... If that was really the case, she just doesn't want anybody getting a window into their life. That's and, yeah. And honestly, yeah. the free hugs is probably because he wasn't getting any. Exactly. Exactly. She um, obviously didn't want the whole world to notice that the child was seriously underdeveloped for his age. In, yeah. In a 2014 article in a New Zealand publication called Paper Trail, Jen stated, Devontae was born with drugs pumping through his tiny body. By age four, Devontae had smoked, consumed alcohol, handled guns, been shot at, and suffered severe abuse and neglect. Jen claimed that Devontae had spoken few words other than curse words, had disabilities, and had been violent. Devontae's mother, Sherry Davis, says Jen Hart simply made this stuff up. After the media attention from the BLM protest and the photo, Jen decided to take a break from social media for about six months. Mm. And I don't know what happened really in between 2014 and 2017, but I'm sure it was a bunch of bullshit and not good. In the spring of 2017, Jen had posted, this year slammed us hard on social media. The hearts were now living in Woodland, Washington. So this is their final destination. So they've moved four times. Final destination. Yeah. Isn't that terrible? Their neighbors, Bruce and Dana DeKalb, were concerned that the children never seemed to leave the house, also turbans, and that the blinds were always down. In August of 2017, Hannah showed up at the DeKalb house at 1.30 a.m. terrified. She begged her neighbors not to send her back to the house. They noticed she was missing her two front teeth. This isn't a little girl. This is a teenager. She's like 14 or 15. Hannah told the neighbors she had jumped from a second story window. She told them she didn't want to go back to her house because her parents were racist and they abused her and her siblings. Hannah was hiding in a bedroom when Jennifer Hart showed up to take her home. The next day, Jennifer, Sarah, and all six children showed up at the DeKalbs. Jen told the DeKalbs, I don't DeKalbs, DeKalbs, that her children were drug babies, which explained why they would act up sometimes. She also said Hannah's mother was bipolar and that Hannah's teeth were knocked out when she fell. I want to add that Jen made Hannah, who was 15, walk around with the knocked out front teeth. She had no plans of getting them fixed anytime soon. 
Dana DeKalb asked to speak to Hannah alone, and Jen replied, we do everything as a family. Oh, uh, that's never a good sign. Hannah gave Dana an apology note and stated she made everything up for attention. Bruce DeKalb reported Jen and Sarah to the authorities good. again, but there was no follow-up action. It just gets worse. In March of 2018, Devontae approached Bruce DeKalb in his driveway while he was cleaning his vehicle. He asked Bruce if he could have something to eat and begged him not to tell his parents. Bruce gave Devontae food and several more times. Devontae provided a list of food items that were needed and asked Bruce to leave the items in a box by the fence so his parents wouldn't find out. The DeKalbs called the authorities again on March 23, 2018. This time, a CPS worker came to the door, but no one answered. I'm like, knock the freaking door down. Yeah, welfare welfare check, man. You knock the door in. She left a card in the door. A big freaking deal. The next morning, Jen's Yukon GMC was not in the driveway. Sarah had called a co-worker at 3 a.m. and said she was too sick to come into work that day. Mm. This time, the hearts would not be stopping and taking photos. They had fled and were traveling on Highway 1. The last sighting of anyone in the Hart family alive was at a Safeway in Fort Bragg, California on March 25th, 2018. The thing I do want to say is it's very strongly down the path of a battered spouse situation if she's calling her co-worker at 3 a.m. saying she's too sick to come into work. That, to me reeks of like the co-worker thought abuse. the same thing yeah the co-worker like, thought the intense same thing. abuse yeah jennifer stopped and purchased some groceries and the next day only about 25 minutes from that safeway jennifer's yukon was spotted belly up at the bottom of a cliff oh my god an investigation into the crash revealed the shocking truth jennifer had pulled off the road and stopped the vehicle about 70 feet from the cliff she then accelerated to about 90 miles per hour and drove off the cliff without applying the brakes it had been a deliberate action no one without had... applying brakes yeah so that meant yeah she revved up and then she that's... but even someone who commits suicide hits the brakes they, yeah they said the absence of skid marks told them she didn't even apply the brake well she was also drunk she that's what i was about to say she has to be drunk Toxic... or on no drugs one, and no one in the car had been wearing a seatbelt. Toxicology showed Jen had an alcohol level above the legal limit and that Sarah and two of the children had taken antihistamines that caused drowsiness. So they all took They were drugged. Yeah. Two weeks later, 12-year-old Sierra's body was located and Hannah's remains were located in 2019. Devontae's body was not recovered. Is there an explanation why they weren't all found in the car together? I don't know. They weren't wearing a seatbelt. They probably got oh, they got th- Oh, so they were in the same general area. Yeah. I thought they were found like very far away. I don't think they were. Oh, okay. I think, okay. I think the one, the body washed up, and the other oh, one, they found, they found, like, a remain. Oh, so and, we're talking, like, they got projectile yeah, from the yeah. car. Oh, God, that's awful. In April of 2019, a special coroner's jury in California ruled that Jennifer and Sarah Hart committed suicide and murdered their six adopted children. This was an unusual jury, since the purpose was was not to rule on criminal culpability, but to determine the cause of death. Yeah. Prior to the crash, like literally as they're driving, Sarah Hart had searched the internet about suicide, Benadryl doses, and whether or not drowning was painful. Sarah had 42 doses of generic Benadryl in her system at the time of her death, and Jennifer's blood alcohol content was 0.102. This is, this, this... I am angry now because those assholes did everything in their power to make their murder or suicide or whatever you want to call it painless Painless. for them, but not for the children that they adopted. That is, 
Yeah. I'm not saying it would have been better had they done that. I'm just saying there is another indicator of those selfish, narcissistic, egomaniacal psychopaths. There were still so many questions. Was this planned all along or was it a spur of the moment in in a moment of desperate the desperation decision once the authorities knocked on the door, you know, how long had this been planned? Um, did Sarah know from the get-go Jennifer was was going this way? How could the system in four different states fail these children? And why don't states talk to each other in cases of CPS complaints? Aren't they supposed to? I would think. Especially if it's minors. Apparently they didn't. I, mm. I don't know. So... When I saw this documentary, I was... What's the name of the documentary? It's called Broken Hearts. Oh. And it was an ID discovery. I think it was of only ma- it was only made like maybe a year ago. And um, I was so depressed after and so sad. And then I, I, I had no intention of covering this. And then I started thinking about it. And I'm like, no, these are stories that need to be told. Because that is... That yeah. is That is an example, another example of the system screwing over children. And in this case, it was definitely racially motivated. I mean, you couldn't, I mean, you can't say it. I mean, they had repeated like reports of child abuse and you're not going to put them in the family's care where she made one mistake that wasn't even abuse. It was the ultimate white saviorhood. It was, it's just, it's just so... And then in the Gross. same respect, there are good foster parents and good adoptive uh-huh. parents out there that get this kind of fucking mm-hmm. rap. And you're like, that's not fair to them either. And you know what? She, this Jennifer person, and I and I do feel sorry. She, I, I'm sure both these women have family members that are still alive. And I feel bad that I'm bad-mouthing them. But, but she, to me... You feel bad because you're bad-mouthing them? For their families. Oh, I don't care... Their families need to be aware of the prob- reality of who their well, they prob- family members are. Well, they were. probably are. So so that's why I say I think that she very conveniently went, I'm so oppressed. I'm a lesbian and, and, and you know, no one understands me. It's a, it's a, it's a smokescreen for I need I need attention. You know, I, I'm a lesbian and all I can do, it's all I can do is just save these poor children that no one wants you know so it's it's like that to me is always also a problem in the foster care system if you're referring to the children as you're saving them i don't think you should be allowed to foster well another thing another thing is um she she was a little bit a little bit tmi on on facebook too about all their supposed issues which probably weren't even true i mean you don't share that kind of stuff. I mean, no. well, that's the thing. There are people who do, but I always am as suspicious as somebody. Why are you sharing that about your child on there? I mean, that's just gross. I mean, yeah, it's just. And especially children that you're claiming have already been really horribly traumatized yes. in their lives. And you're going to put them through even more trauma. It's just crazy to me. Yeah crazy to me so here's another really awful fact that i found out so sherry davis the month that was the mother of Devonte, so she had the four sherry davis and then the father that celestine mm-hmm. they didn't even learn about the accident until like two or three weeks later they learned from priscilla who was the <gasps> one and and i mean imagine how devastating i mean they, i watched this documentary and saw interviews with all these people i mean it, and it was just the saddest one of the saddest things i think i've I've heard in the last 10 years i mean just really sad i mean i mean after watching the turpins i was deeply depressed but i mean this is just wild in the worst way horrible well way to kick off our uh month of horrible stories rightfully so uh, unfortunately that need some more exposure because 
these are six children that should not have died. No, it all could have been avoided. It all could have been avoided. That's the worst part of it. It really could have been avoided. It's not like... And the thing is, there were people doing the right thing. Yeah. And think how they feel, too. I mean, like, the neighbors were like, my God, we called all these times. I mean... Yeah, we thought we were... Teachers that were doing the right thing. Yeah, going, we thought we were doing the right thing by reporting it. And then nothing ever came of it. That's just not... And then the final report sent them over the edge, you know, and it's just... Oh, my God. Yeah, it's wild. That is awful. What a horrible story. Um, but thank you. And you're welcome. (laughs) But thank you for telling it because it needed to be told. I almost said it needed to be told. Um, so (laughs) next week I will be covering a case. We don't announce the next week, right? Well, you can if you want. You do whatever you want. Is that what we do? I don't know. Do we do? Sometimes we drop little nuggets, little hints. Sometimes. Okay, so. Next week, I'll drop some nuggets. Next week is a slightly more in the news case. Mm -hmm. However, it didn't really come to light until like the 2020, um, not 2020. Yeah. The 2020, like big, massive BM, BLM, like protests and everything really, it didn't come to light until like come into the news Mm -hmm. media until then. Um, and it is still going on. Um, and it's still doesn't really have a resolution so unlike this one where there's uh we know who did it we know who did it we know there's something yeah that you know something definitely was failed in that way next week's case is going to be a little different in that there is no resolution yet and the um you know prejudice and you know essential like hiding of what actually happened is still happening because the authorities are still in control of the situation. So anyway, that's super vague statement. I hope you're really excited about next week's episode, but thank you, Aaron, for this horrible story (laughs) um, that really sheds light on some things that need to be out in the open so that people know that, you know, this yeah. this kind of shit can't keep going on. Like it's got to no. stop eventually. I mean, I mean, I I mean this when I tell you that I had more sleepless nights over this. Yeah, this than, is pretty than, horrific. Than like any ser- sadistic serial killer that I mean, that I've ever talked about. Th- because this this is just so real to me. Well, it's like one of those situations of it's like you could see the train wreck. Yeah, coming. Like, why didn't you just get out of the way? Like, why didn't they just get the kids out of the way? Like, you could see it coming down the road. It's almost, I mean, in a way, it's almost worse than the Turpins because you didn't really see it. Like, Mm -hmm. because it wasn't quite so out in the open, I don't think, like, people didn't really know. This, I mean, people were doing, like you said, they were trying to do the right thing and it just, nothing was coming from it. Yeah, I think that's the worst part about it is there were were capable people that could have taken them in and caring people that were trying to do something and none of it worked. It's just wild to me, but... yeah. Anyway, friends, we want you. Oh, sorry for the yawn, everybody. We want you to send us emails at 31 nights of scary shit at gmail.com because we want to hear your stories. You could also send us messages on Facebook at 31 nights of scary shit. We're going to be posting some more stuff on there. Um, on Instagram at 31 nights of scary shit, on the Twitter at scary shit pod. You can donate to our Venmo at Podcast 31 Nights or on our Buy Me a Coffee, which is linked in the show notes. And um, yeah, we just want to make sure that you uh, stay spooky. Uh, Bye.